Welcome to another episode of Tell Me More. Today, Dr. Wiles, Kitty, Reed Hodges, and myself have a extended conversation about church, church history, the Trinity, lots of other interesting things, and we hope that you enjoyed this conversation and that it helps shape your life and deepen your discipleship. Welcome back to the studio. Um, Luke, you and I both were not here last week. We were not. So we're, Ryan did a great we're job. We're grateful to our colleague, new colleague, Ryan And Chandler. I would say he does not just have a face for radio. He has. He has the voice for radio. He's He's the voice for radio. And I love him. <laughs> I know. Don't demean yourself, yeah. Ryan. Ryan. You, Ryan's awesome. You offer more to the world than you let on. <laughs> so, But today, it's, we're back, all three of us, so... Welcome, guys. Welcome. Here we are. Yes, it is Monday morning. It is Monday morning. Um, the rain last night blew in whatever my allergies don't like, <laughs> so you might hear some nasally voices today. Can so, get us all. Yeah, yep. it is what it is. So, okay, well, we're hopping in stream of a conversation. Mm-hmm. We're, ooh, I don't mm-hmm. want to get it wrong, three sermons in to a nine-sermon series mm-hmm. on the church. Correct. And yesterday we talked about fellowship, community, togetherness. Actually, four sermons in. Is it? it kind of started with on purpose and then that's right. believers. Yeah, this was the fourth Sunday mm-hmm. of September. Yeah. See, the I first just one was I got kind it wrong. of an intro. But it counts. Mm-hmm. It counts. It, it was Labor Day. Yeah. Every sermon counts, right? Every sermon yeah. Yeah, counts. It does. It <laughs> no, does. it is. So yeah, we're four, we're almost halfway there. That's right. Next this this Sunday will be the zenith. Mm, wow. Mm. Wow. <laughs> the, the, that's a five dollar word. The tippy like top it. of the mountain. I like it. And then we'll go downhill from there. Um, <laughs> Right into missions one. It's so. just straight up. It's straight uphill. There's it, no downhill. No, right. uphill climb. Always, well, I don't know about I like that, it. <clears throat> anyway, um, so there's a few things that you talked about that I think are worth us talking about in here. Mm-hmm. Um, soon, I want us to deep dive into the Trinity, which I think our listeners will really enjoy because mm-hmm. that's not easy. Mm-hmm. And many people get it wrong. Very mm-hmm. few get it right. And you've got, I'm in the studio with two smart people. Two, <laughs> there two, are three <laughs> smart people in this I was room. I about to say. But I'm, Come on now. In here with two smart people. You go so am I. As am I. <laughs> Whoa, there's some Trinity language going on. So anyway, I want to talk about that. But first, I thought it might be interesting to our church. You you have mentioned this in sermons several times. In mm-hmm. fact, you keep coming back to it. But for the listeners on the podcast, and maybe just mm-hmm. um, tell us more that you wouldn't mm-hmm. say on a Sunday morning, mm-hmm. there is this scripture ring, as we call it. Correct. When you walk into our main church building from Center Street. Correct. You're going to walk over or around mm-hmm. this cross. Correct. With scripture around it. So you want to tell us maybe how that mm-hmm. how that came to be mm-hmm. and what it means mm-hmm. to our church? Well, yes, it's it's a part of a larger conversation. When our when our sanctuary was built in nineteen fifty nine, um our community was very different than it is now. And it was the largest structure open to the public um that uh, existed in Arlington at the time. And so our our legendary pastor, Dr. East, Henry East, had this vision that that we would be hosting um, campus for the community. And so he felt like the best way to do that was to go really light on iconography within the church itself. And so there was there was very little Christian iconography within the sanctuary or the surrounding buildings, if you will. No stained glass. Correct. So that way you could That's... host UTAs, graduations, high school graduations. They even showed movies. We had a, mm-hmm. you're talking about um, avant-garde. We had a projection booth at the top of the sanctuary in the balcony and a huge screen that came down behind. We were the first. 
to have projectors ever. and screens. Yes, right. Absolutely. Yeah. Fight your <laughs> worship wars later. They weren't but, to be used on Sunday morning. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, nobody even thought about it. That's right. Um, so we had screens before screens were cool. Um, and so I always knew we were a hipster uh, church. Yes. Mm-hmm. So didn't know. <clears throat> well, over time, obviously things changed. You know, other structures were built and convention centers and those kinds of things. But the church yeah, still— It turns out now we have a venue for 100,000 people in Arlington. <laughs> right. Isn't that exactly. what the stadium holds? Well, yes, Something like that. Right. Yeah. yeah. And so things have changed. <clears throat> and so one of the um, hopes that I've had is to um, bring more representation of our Christian faith um, through the visual arts, if you will, to our campus and I'm saying that respectfully because this church obviously has been incredibly known in this community oh, as a part of for that season. That was course. yeah. Mm-hmm. So we're in a different season. So when we did all of the renovation, we started with the with the um, welcome center, which is where the scripture ring is, and then we extended that into um, the sanctuary renovation, and um, also the the small courtyard out in front of the church where we have the statue of of the divine servant. Jesus washing the feet of Simon Peter. Um, and then, obviously, we have Psalm 1 inscribed on the wall of the sanctuary. We have the stained glass with a cross on it. We have the Colossians passage on on those very decorative doors walking out of the sanctuary, the scripture we speak over everyone So when they join the church. So we've tried to bring more of that into the physical structure of the church. So <clears throat> one of my ideas was— when you walk in the church off of Center Street into that main entrance, that somehow you be greeted artistically with a theological mm-hmm. statement. That was our idea. And we we batted around numerous ways to do that. And uh, and finally, we landed on the idea of what if we placed something actually in the, in the tile, some type of either mosaic or just mm-hmm. some type of representation of our, our theology. And so we quickly landed on a cross. Um, and then the decision was, well, perhaps we can actually have Scripture inscribed on the floor as well. So that's where the whole idea of the Scripture ring came from. Mm-hmm. And we looked for a cross that we felt like was – first of all, we, we I'll be honest, we were looking for something artistic because, you know, crosses are, are somewhat simple. We knew we weren't going to do a crucifix. We're not a Roman Catholic church. Right. Right? Protestants historically have struggled with that simply because of how the crucifix is used, you know, in some ways – not because we don't believe Jesus was ever on a cross. So let's clear that yes, up. Yes, just <laughs> so yeah. Uh, if you're we, listening for notes, right, bullet we, point one. Yeah, we, we believe Jesus we was crucified, Jesus was but we also believe he was resurrected. Correct. Yes, yeah. both of us. So, um, Very so, important. Right, Turns so out. So as I was taught growing up, for Baptists, both the cross and the tomb are empty. You know. So, but anyway. And you grew up in a very Catholic uh, setting. I did. So that would be a, right. a, a teaching. We had to distinguish point. ourselves. Yeah, you sure, know, so. sure. But anyway. So as we researched, we found what we thought was a beautiful cross from an artistic perspective, and that's the Carolingian cross. But we also, um, because I'm I'm a very um, I'm very committed to Trinitarian theology. This particular cross is comprised of those Trinity knots, you know, those mm-hmm. four Trinity knots. That if you angle them just right, you can actually make a cross out of them, mm-hmm. which is what was done in the 700s. And um, and it's, it's connected to the the family of Charlemagne, you know Charles Martel and that whole family. That was the cross that represented them. And um, and so once we decided that was the cross we would use, those triquetras as they interlocked, they they represent the Trinity. 
And once we decided on that, we felt like we needed to make a statement about our our church's conviction theologically in that scripture ring. So that's where we landed on Acts 2.42, where the scripture says that these new believers, all of them that believe, were devoted to the apostles' teaching. Mm-hmm. So the idea of spiritual formation, to the fellowship, to the, what I talked about yesterday, to the community, the communal life that we shared, breaking of bread, and to the prayers, uh, which to us, you know, the breaking of bread can probably go either way, it can go toward the fellowship or toward the prayers, because the prayer, and literally it's plural in Greek, it says to prayer in English, but mm. um, so the the worship life of of these people is represented there, and so to us those ideas of of the, you know, the apostolic witness, which is leads us to spiritual formation, to community and fellowship, and to worship, those are three very important components we believe of the life of a church. So that's how that that's how that all materialized. And um, and so what I love about it is, is when you enter the church, when you exit the church, that's the last thing, first thing it greets you, the last thing you you <coughs> connect to on your way out. Mm-hmm. And not um, a bad first impression. That's right. And uh, and to me, it, it's representative of who we are theologically. We are Trinitarian Christians, and we're committed to the local church. Mm, so. Okay, I like well, all of that. tell me more mm-hmm. about that. <laughs> so, what does it mean to be a Trinitarian Christian? <laughs> uh, do you want to do a little deep dive? Tell us. We can. When Okay. Now, you, <laughs> we did not prepare. So I'm going to throw a bunch of questions out, and you tell me which one you want to, you know. It's always, the, well, as you all know, as members of First Reverend Shillington, the Q&A part of any lesson with Dennis Wiles is always where I just get my mind blown, you know. Cause you, it's kind of scary. It's crazy. because My I mind mean, is filled with a lot of useless information. I'm okay, sorry but about this that. is not useless. I know, but, but, I mean, so the word Trinity, <laughs> so true or false, the word Trinity is in the Bible. Uh, only if you write it in yourself in the notes. Oh, so yeah. any, anything in, can be in the Bible. It's not actually so, in the original okay, text. Okay, so no. it, this is a big, broad question. You take it's it not. If Trinity is not in the Bible, mm-hmm. when did it come about? Now it's part of our normal vocabulary when we talk about God and Jesus and Spirit. Right. So take us from point A to point B, <laughs> or I can get more specific. When was the first instance of it? Yeah. Who, well, the word Trinity— is not in the scripture, but the Trinity is in the scripture. So yes, that would be, that would be my great <laughs> distinction. <laughs> that would be my argument. Yeah, so that's good. But who was uh, the one? It was there a one or a community of people who at first kind of said, "We need to start talking about God this way." Uh, yeah, I would say the disciples, people like Matthew. You know, where Matthew quotes Jesus, where he says, "You're going to, you're you're receiving this commission: make disciples and baptize them in the name singular." Of the Father, Son, the Holy mm. Spirit, plural. Mm-hmm. So you've got mm-hmm. this plurality represented by a so singular it is noun. Very so it's when yeah. you say from it like the that. very beginning. And then Trinitarian <laughs> theologians would also point to the baptism of Christ mm-hmm. as a place where all three members of the Trinity are present. So you have Jesus being immersed in the water. You have the Father's voice mm-hmm. coming out of heaven and the Spirit descending mm-hmm. like a dove. Mm-hmm. Um, so we see it mm-hmm. in the New Testament. Mm-hmm. Um, and some would even point to examples in the Old Testament. Absolutely. I would go back to Genesis 1. You've got God, you've got the Spirit of God, and Hovering the Word of God. God. Yeah. <laughs> so you, mm-hmm. you actually have this. And, and when God says, let us mm-hmm. make man after our own image, well, God is speaking in the plural. So the seeds of the Trinity, I would argue, are in the Old Testament, the full flowers in the New Testament. Yeah. But, you know, I, w- I would say, um, you know, the, 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 the early church, you know, has to grapple with the theology of Christianity, mm-hmm. you know that was that was in their hands. You and I are in a in a much better place, if you will. Yeah. <laughs> we've got two thousand years of grappling, but those early believers have got to somehow communicate who the God of of the Bible is, or who this this new movement 
uh, who is this God? Yeah. And how is Jesus connected to him? What does this even mean? So and they're doing <clears throat> it in a context. Yes. And often when you do get clarity on a theological issue, it's because somebody went rogue. Somebody got it wrong. Correct. A lot of times that would have, that, and that happened in, here. The, in the early Absolutely. church. And you had to kind of put it back on the rails, mm-hmm. right? Someone started saying, well, mm-hmm. even in the New Testament. Yes. I mean, some of, like Galatians is written because people were starting to drift one way. Correct. Puts it back on the rails. Mm-hmm. So anyway. But I think, um, I would just say that historically, when the, when the early believers began to come to grips with what all this really means, the first thing I would say is that they had to get clarity on was exactly what would qualify as the canon. <clears throat> and the good news is those early believers were Jewish, and so they already had in their mind the concept of holy writ, if you will. That there was already this concept of, of written literature that was viewed as divinely inspired. So the good news is you've got this this group of of early followers of Jesus who already are familiar with that and are expecting that there's a further revelation of God now in Christ. If he really is the Messiah, then certainly if Moses came or if Moses was the lawgiver, if you will, then surely to goodness the Messiah is going to give us even more information Mm -hmm. than Moses. Mm -hmm. And so the idea of apostolic witness, I think, was embraced really early on in the early church. And so that's why you have people like Matthew and John writing some of this down, um, Peter and and Paul, obviously. Um, and so the, the whole concept of the canon is, I think, where you start. And it's in that canon. It's in that recognized um, scripture that's already, you know, for example, you get to like A.D. 90 or so, and Clement is the pastor of the church in Rome. And Clement writes a letter to the Corinthian church, and he actually quotes Paul as authoritative. So you've got a pastor in Rome in A.D. 90 who's already decided that the writings of Paul are more authoritative than his writings. Mm -hmm. In other words, they're they're inspired writings. You need to pay attention to this. This is what the Apostle Paul said. So you've you've got very early on the the idea that these written texts are, are divinely inspired. And then we have evidence Dating back to, you know, we've got copies of John's gospel, about 120 or so, um, maybe even earlier copies of Mark. Some of that's debating, debatable. But the point is, I mean, very soon after this movement is launched, you've got written material recording the words of Jesus, the teachings of Jesus, the theology of Jesus, if you will, is probably what I would call it. Um, we'd call it Christian theology today. But mm. but in those days, I would view it as just the theology mm. of Jesus. Mm-hmm. You know, And so, well, how did Jesus reveal himself? Well, he said things like this, I and the Father of one are one. You know, when the disciples said, well, Lord, show us the Father. And he's like, well, right. look at me. You know, right. I am, the, I am the Father. And then he says, are the Father and I are one. Then he says, before Abraham was, I am. am. And there's, there's the phrase, mm-hmm. that statement that every Jew would have recognized. So the, the kind of beginning point of having this conversation about about who Jesus is happens really within Christ himself. Now, once you fast forward through two or 300 years of Christian history, granted, a lot of persecution, like Luke said, they're doing all this in context. There's a lot of persecution. There's a lot of um, um, incredible growth in numbers. So mm-hmm. you've got just Christianity is exploding, particularly in the eastern part of the empire. And so— Which was primarily Greek yes, speaking. So, <clears throat> so that then leads you to write— most of this theology in Greek. So, and and the question was, is it okay to take extra biblical words to give definition to and texture to the biblical teaching? 
And pretty early on, the the church fathers decided, yes, <laughs> we, we've got to create a vocabulary to have a conversation. And so if you read a lot of that early theology, most of what you're reading are terms that are borrowed from these Greek philosophical categories. So Christianity and Christian theology is happening in the contextual framework of Greek philosophy, right. but informed mm-hmm. by Scripture. Correct. Tell me more. So they're going to use Greek words <clears throat> like that what? we don't always use in church. Like, we don't just walk around talking about the hypostatic union of Christ <laughs> right. on a daily don't basis. <laughs> yeah. That's because just... the, the questions people were asking were things like this. Okay, well, so how does Jesus relate to God? Who is the Son of mm-hmm. God? Is the, did God create the Son of God? Did he adopt a he, really is great he, person? Yeah, is he, is he assumed at some point historically? Is he eternal? Is he co-eternal? Well, those were—is is, is he in the very essence God? So those were hard conversations. Then eventually they're going to get to the question of, well, well then, who is Jesus? Does he have two natures? Does he have one nature? And so you have these very profound theological questions. So, for example, go back early to Acts 15. One of the one of the very first questions was, how do you even do that? How do you even become a Christian? How do you even follow mm-hmm. this whole thing? So the church convened a council, uh, or, the, or the leaders convened a council in Acts 15, the apostles, to answer the deep question about salvation. Well, what's going to ha- happen over time, Christian leaders are going to look to that and say, well, when we have a deep theological question, we need to bring all the theologians together and convene a council and answer the questions of the day. So you have these, you have this whole conciliar theology, it's called, this, the theology of the councils, where you bring these brilliant theologians and pastors together to answer these very profound and deep questions. And then it's their job to decide what's orthodox, what's heresy, you know? And so um, conversations about the Trinity took place in that very context. And so where the church lands is, is that God is, that we are monotheists, we believe in one God, but we believe that this God that we that we have embraced who has revealed himself to us is incredibly complex, <laughs> and he is not us, mm-hmm. and uh, we are simply made in his image, mm-hmm. but he exists in plurality, which is very difficult for us to, to comprehend, and he exists in eternal communion within himself. Right. And so he, we believe, whether we can understand it or not, he has revealed himself. That's really what matters is how he's revealed himself. And he's revealed himself as Father, Son, and Spirit. And that's the language that's used in the New Testament. And the, the Son and the Spirit are referred to as divine in the New Testament. Mm-hmm. And so if, you're a, if you don't believe in the Trinity, then that would all be blasphemous. You, you could not say the Son of God is divine. That would be blasphemy. Mm-hmm. Or the Spirit of God even <clears throat> is a separate member of that uh, communal entity known as God. Those would be blasphemous statements, but because we believe God's revealed himself in that complexity, we, we view them as theologically orthodox. Mm. Now, the question is, how do you describe that all? <laughs> and how do you come up with words that help us understand how they relate to each other and how they exist co-eternally with order, but no rank? Yeah. That's that's where it gets really challenging. Yeah. How do you have order and not correct hierarchy? Correct. <clears throat> As if because or even how they how they reveal them how he reveals himself all at one time. So is it is it is it God is only Jesus at one time? Is he God at another time? So mm. the whole idea of modalism right. that you know there's all this heresy that just kind of grew up all around the Trinity because it is such a complex doctrine. And what I would say to our people is, don't be freaked by that. <clears throat> In fact, I would celebrate the fact that our God is way more complex than you can comprehend. Aren't mm-hmm. we glad? Aren't yeah. we glad he's not like us? <laughs> I mean, yeah. If I could somehow craft a God in my image, 
well, then he wouldn't really be God. And so that's not how it and works. if you could understand all of it, that's you could exactly control right. it. And, yeah. yeah. So live in the mystery of it. And, you know, there have been numerous theological terms that have been coined to try to help us understand it. You know, like, for example, um, when you talk about the, God, the essence of Christ and his relationship with God, is he of the same essence? Is he of a different essence? Well, those early church fathers said, well— it depends on on your view. If you're a heretic, <laughs> you would see them as different. You think they're similar, yeah, but similar, different. but different. So they would have referred to it as homoousios, of a similar essence. But our orthodox theologians said, no, that's not good enough. It's homoousios. The same. The same essence. And so, again, there's a Greek word coined to try to communicate something that's taught and revealed in Scripture. And so it's important. Um, and again, as, as you as Luke just said, we don't we don't walk around church, you know, and at, talking about homoousios. But there was a time when the church did, yeah, <laughs> because it was very important to understand the true Orthodox teaching about the Trinity. Yeah. So, and, and I would say, if you're a avid tell me more listener who's just looking for some extra homework, mm-hmm. and you just want to do a cursory Wikipedia searching, all of Christendom, all of Orthodox Christendom. Right believing Christian, Protestant, Eastern Orthodox, we would all affirm the first five ecumenical councils, is yes. what they're called. Yeah. So you may have never thought about that as a Baptist, but you actually agree mm-hmm. with the first five. And those would be things that establish the divinity of Christ, that Christ is the same as same essence as mm-hmm. the Father. He's God. That establish the, the Trinity. Mm-hmm. You agree with all of those. Mm-hmm. You just don't know it. Right. So you can go and read about those five mm-hmm. councils. Any you, would council quibble, that, you would quibble a little bit with Mary, you know, because the the whole, you know, Theotokos yeah. is Mary, the mother of God. Is she the mother of Christ? But if, if you would give the councils credit for the era in which they lived, if if you want to be technically correct, you can say Mary was the mother of God in the sense that when she gave birth to Christ, he is God in the flesh. Right. But if you use that later, of course, to ascribe things to her that the New Testament doesn't ascribe, well, that's where you get on a little mm-hmm. shakier ground. But, yes. uh, but, but if 431, you take it for what it is. Yeah, the Council of Ephesus 431, that was one of the big questions. What about Mary? Is she, um, you know, is she Christotokos, Christo, Christotokos, the mother of Christ, or is she Theotokos, the mother of God? Well, the landing was Theotokos, she's mother mm-hmm. of God. She's, mm-hmm. yeah. but, but you're right, the, the orthodox teachings of those first five councils Help can we us talk, right can we talk, now. Oh, excuse me. Can have, we talk a little bit more about the councils for those at home? Yeah. When was the first? I mean, you say an oh, ecumenical gosh. council. Three twenty-five. And what churches were present? Well, it was in Nicaea, right. and and the the one that's a little dicey about, it, but it's not really dicey. It just is what it is. Again, it's contextual. Constantine has taken over the world, mm-hmm. and he has embraced <clears throat> Christianity. So it's now uh, a state religion. Yeah. So he's made Christianity it's legal. free. Yeah, it's legal. You don't have to be an underground church anymore. That's right. Yeah. But you had a question about the nature of the relationship between God and Jesus. And so um, you had some very powerful preachers in those days, which, which is just kind of how it worked. And these preachers were theologians, you know, and they were typically over the house churches in a certain community. So you would, and they were called the overseers. So you had an overseer of Antioch, you had an overseer of Nicomedia, an overseer of Jerusalem, overseer of Rome. Eventually became they were actually known as bishops once you put that word into English, and um, but they were the they were the fathers of the church. They were the theologians, and they and they were they, these people were thoughtful, trained people. They studied the Greek classics. They were very schooled in Plato and Aristotle, and 
um, and also they they were Greek readers, and so the New Testament was not foreign to them. It was mm-hmm. they were at home it was in the a New Testament. Tongue. Yeah, it was, it was their language, and um, and 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 they were godly people, but they disagreed about about some things. Well, when Constantine took over the empire, one of his concerns was that he felt like there needed to be more unity across the empire. The empire was unwieldy. Um, and he had watched what Diocletian had done. Diocletian divided the empire in the east and the west, and he divided up into dioceses, you know, after after himself. Mm-hmm. And uh, and Diocletian said, "What you need, the, the empire's too big. You need a ruler in the in the east and a ruler in the west." And so that's exactly what happened. You had an emperor in the west in Rome. You had an emperor in the east in what eventually would become Constantinople. I think we touched on some yeah, of this. You had a weeks junior ago. emperor in yeah. both places. Well, when Constantine took over, he decided that that was just no longer the way to do it. You just needed an emperor, and it had to be him. Mm-hmm. But he wanted the empire to be united and not divided. And when he found out that theologians disagreed about the relationship that Jesus and the Father had, that concerned him. So you had a very powerful preacher named uh, Arius mm-hmm. who said Jesus was begotten. He was created, if you will. But you also had another very powerful preacher named Athanasius who said no. That's just not true. You know, he's he's of the same essence. So a council's convened by Constantine in Nicaea in Turkey in 325. And according to legend, fun fact, St. Nicholas, better known as Santa Claus, allegedly punched Arius in the face That's right. at that council. <clears throat> you probably don't see that on many Christmas cards. No, but, <laughs> but uh, in church history, every once in a while, best known like for being a heretic puncher. Christian circles, right. you do see that. You know. But um, the, the, the one issue that took place. Well, there are a number of things happened there, but the Bishop of Rome refused to attend that particular council. So that was the one council where you've got one of the most powerful pastors in the world who wouldn't go. And that's simply because it wasn't in Rome. You know, in his mind, this is the Roman Empire. It doesn't matter that it's being ruled in Constantinople, Constantine's new town, Istanbul today. And so he refused to go, but all the other leaders were there. And so then over time, they started meeting places like Ephesus and Chalcedon, and and what what they were doing was they were struggling with these core questions about Christian theology, and there was a, there was a certain nuance that was present in each one of them, you know. And so, for example, you get to four thirty one, they convene a council in Ephesus, and the question was, what about the nature of Christ? Is he does he have two natures? Does he have one nature? Well, you had a very powerful teacher named Nestorius, who mm-hmm. said he was of two natures. Well, the problem with that was. That didn't feel like the full incarnation. You know, was he really a human being? Mm-hmm. What What do we believe about the incarnation? So Nestorius was condemned. Arius was condemned in 325. Nestorius was condemned in 432. So these councils would claim orthodoxy, and then that gave definition to heresy. And, and as Luke said, the good news is over those first probably 400 years or so um, after the first council was convened, you had— Orthodox theology just worked out among these theologians, mm-hmm. and it was embraced by, for the most part, by most of the church uh, throughout the empire. And so that led to a good, solid Christian theological foundation for the church. This mm-hmm. lasted to this day. So, yeah. How about that? So the work. Trinity was embraced. Holy Spirit was given definition. Yes. Eventually, the, the, because, you know, there was a lot of conversation about the Father and the Son. It took a while for them to get to the Holy Spirit. I didn't really know that out until about 300. <laughs> yeah. But the problem it's was— It's worth wrestling with. Yeah, but the problem was there was so much—not problem. There was so much emphasis on Jesus and who is Jesus and how can he be God in the flesh and what about his nature. Well, there was just so much to be dealt with. 
then finally they realize we've got to deal with the Holy Spirit also and, and how the Holy Spirit is connected here. So so we emerge out of that conciliar period, if you will, with with the theological convictions that most of Christendom holds to today. I mean, the, the fact that, you know, God is the creator of the universe and that he exists in plurality and in eternal community within himself. And he has revealed himself as Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Jesus Christ is fully human and fully divine at the same time. That Somehow God was able to accomplish that miracle. If God could create the universe, surely he could do that. The Holy Spirit, um, it's a person, not just an impersonal right. force. It's not, a, it's not the wind. <laughs> he is actually a full member of the Trinity. Um, and, and also the canon, you know, you get past the— I mean, I would say the New Testament was already embraced in the, in the early, uh, I would say, 100s. But certainly by 325, you've got the New Testament as we know it, uh, as authorized scripture. And so, you know, you're going to have, think about it, from about 300, 400, somewhere in there, AD, AD 3, 400, you're going to go all the way to the Reformation with, um, with a solid theological core underpinning. Now, what's going to happen is um, as the empire falls apart, you're going to end up with some incredible political power being put in the hands of the Bishop of Rome, and that political power is going to find its way into the church, and so you're going to have a whole lot of mixture between political power and spiritual power, mm-hmm. and it's going to be very corrupt. It's just, I mean, that's just kind of what happens. That's still true today. Um, mm-hmm. It's certainly true then. And so eventually, the, the, the good news is of the Reformation, the core doctrines of Christianity for the Protestant church were all affirmed. It was the extraneous theological teachings that were rejected by the Protestants. You know, I say extraneous, I'm saying that respectfully. But what I would say is the the non-canonical kinds of theological convictions that you can't find rooted in the Scripture because the Protestant Reformation was about sola scriptura. It's yeah. in the Scripture or it's not. If it's not, then we're going to really struggle with it actually being uh, an official dogmatic teaching of the church. So, mm. so yeah, it's a— it's an incredible journey. It's it, and I would tell you that that the Spirit of God is, I believe, superintended all of that. I believe He brought together some of the greatest minds the church has ever known. Men like Athanasius, men like Augustine, um, eventually Tertullian, uh, or earlier Tertullian, and um, and men like Ambrose. Um, they, these are just some of the 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 men that God put, and I keep saying men, but I mean it's that's just how the the society so worked in men. those days. Yeah. But these men were incredibly brilliant men. They weren't they weren't just committed Christians. They were, but these were giant intellectuals. These were people who could have had a conversation with anybody in their world, mm-hmm. you know, and just so happened their minds were redeemed and they were servants of the church and they felt obligated to answer and wrestle these theological questions to the mat. Mm-hmm. And uh, so when we all get to heaven— when you see guys like Ambrose and Athanasius mm-hmm. and Augustine, you need to walk up to them and high five them, fist be. bump them, whatever it is. Yeah. <laughs> whatever feels appropriate <laughs> yeah. in that right, moment. Right, right. If you, we, you guys made this. We feel like this. we can break into that table. Yeah. You know. I mean, it's they, they ground they, level at the foot of the cross. Yeah. I know, but still, they right. truly, yeah. truly gave us a solid foundation that has proven to be unshakable, mm-hmm. really, even yeah. to this day. You, you talk about Orthodox Christianity. Well, you find yourself back into every one of those decisions mm-hmm. you do. that were yeah. that were that were decided, mm. you know, for us. So okay, well, we got 
a little bit technical, (laughs) a little bit historical. (laughs) No, I asked the question and I went there. But the reason you preached on the Trinity yesterday Mm -hmm. was to emphasize it's communal. Correct. It's relational. It the Trinity is relational, mm-hmm. and therefore we can be relational people. Mm-hmm. So it's not only a theological concept to be grappled with; it's to it's to be uh, lived. Yeah, lived out. It's, it's a beat. it's a model. It's a model that mm-hmm. that enlightens how mm-hmm. we ought to live. And so, mm-hmm. um, so you're talking about it with our church mm-hmm. and how it matters to our church. And mm-hmm. so, Luke, you have some thoughts on that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm going to be technical and geeky now. <laughs> Um, we just got technical. I know. It's no, just going to keep going. No, it's good. Uh, <laughs> we have learned that our listeners like that very much, so I'm not it's afraid of it one bit. Yeah. Yeah. So as you preached yesterday, there are a few things that came to my mind. And before you all get winged out that I'm quoting a bunch of Eastern Orthodox theologians, mm-hmm. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start with a Baptist theologian who also thinks and writes this way. His name's Stanley Grins. Mm-hmm. wrote a really great systematic, systematic theology mm-hmm. called Theology for the Community of God, one of the best... Baptist systematics mm-hmm. you could read. Mm-hmm. Um, Taught briefly at Truett. He did teach briefly Very at Truett. Briefly. I never had him. <laughs> he was friends with one of the professors I did have, but mm-hmm. would be just kind of one of those giants of mm-hmm. Baptist theology. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but his book, Theology for the Community of God, you might guess, drives at the fact that church and our life as Christians is communal. Mm-hmm. And so this is really where that journey started for me. Um, but as you talked, you worked through some concepts that if I could name them, with the technical language as I perceive them, and that may just be my own bias. Mm-hmm. The way you talked about the Trinity was really reminiscent of the way that Eastern Orthodox theologians talk about the Trinity. Now, if we think about church history in about the year 1000, 1100, or yeah, around there, there's what's called the Great Schism. Mm-hmm. And for lots of reasons that we don't need to talk about, mm-hmm. the Eastern Orthodox Church and the Roman Catholic Church split mm-hmm. part ways and really won't come together again in any meaningful way until about like three years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's still dicey. It's yeah. still dicey. But they just started talking in a, about three years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, not exaggerating. So the way that Eastern Orthodoxy has typically talked about the Trinity is that the Trinity is this community of persons. God is a community. He's a communal being. Sometimes it sounds like they're emphasizing more of what we call the tritheistic side, that they're emphasizing the threeness. Mm-hmm. I'll just say as a theologian, any way you talk about Trinity, you're gonna there's a ditch on both sides. Mm-hmm. You can go way too hard in the oneness, or you can go way too hard in the threeness. Mm-hmm. So on the oneness side is just straight up Unitarianism. There's no Trinity. Mm-hmm. It's just one God. One being. Which is heresy. It's heresy. Mm-hmm. Or on the other side is tritheism. Mm-hmm. We actually have three gods. Which this is, is what heresy. Muslims would accuse us of this. Mm-hmm. That's heresy. We're trying to thread the needle. Mm-hmm. But any image you use to talk about Trinity is going to kind of lean. Mm-hmm. It's like riding a unicycle and we're just trying to stay balanced mm-hmm. in the middle. So you're going to lean one way or the other. Mm-hmm. We're trying to thread the middle. Eastern Orthodoxy tends to lean more on the threeness side. So if I sound like a heretic, I'm very sorry. <laughs> I think they're orthodox. Um, but they talk about this language of the Trinity is like a dance. So they would use this word perichoresis, which literally translated from Greek just means dance around. I think choreography, perimeter, you put those kind of words together. Perichoresis. So the Trinity is this dance moving in an eternal circle. And they're holding hands. You think about if you think about a Greek wedding and they dance in a circle holding hands, that's the image. And so they would say that the Trinity, this community, is a community of love. And it's got this centripetal force that's drawing all of creation into it. 
and it's drawing us as people into its love. And so if we keep that thread going, and I think this is what you did in your sermon, is that community of love in the Trinity is drawing us, but it's also our image. So you would see some Eastern Orthodox theologians also talk about how the image of God is actually communal and that it's we are beings destined for community. That would be Stanley Grins's language, the mm-hmm. Baptist theologian. Mm-hmm. He would say we're beings destined for community. That's what it means that we're made in the image um, because mm-hmm. like God is community, we need it. Mm-hmm. So you have theologians who'll talk about the church is actually the image of the Trinity. Our communal life is the representation of the communal life of God. Mm-hmm. Not only that we represent it, but we're also being drawn into its heart. And so you think about what we're supposed to do as people. We're being drawn in to the life of the triune God. And we're, we want to link hands with everyone in our lives and start to pull them into that center. Um, and I think that's what's beautiful about that image. It's not a perfect image. You can find right. hundreds of theologians on the internet who are going to talk about how flawed mm-hmm. this model of the Trinity is, mm-hmm. just like you would find hundreds mm-hmm. of theologians on any the other of, side. Any of them, right? Yeah. <clears throat> so mm-hmm. that's kind of, if I did a mm-hmm. theological deep dive where I landed, and that may have been clear as mud. So, <laughs> no, it's good. No, I think it's right. I think you're right. And, 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 and it's unfortunate, you know, what? Um, the the schism that you know to, to the east and the west there are a lot of reasons why the east and the west broke my gosh but um that i always hate when that kind of thing happens because you you take the tension away you know mm-hmm. and so then what typically happens is they the the competing entities rush to the extremes yeah and the western church for the record always leans towards oneness yes for sure that's why we should still all be together mm-hmm. because we would hold each other accountable. You know, we would have a, I think we would have a better, more holistic understanding of, of who God is. And, and we would do that in conversation. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, the, you know, the East and the West split and, and really haven't come back together. And it's very hard for the Eastern church to come back to the Western church because they view themselves as the original church. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so they're waiting on the They've Western, some ground they're waiting on, on the Western church to come to them <laughs> in all honesty. And the last thing they need is a Pope <laughs> because <laughs> they've got their, they've got an original church in Jerusalem, remember? And so they're looking at the one in Rome going, now when, when did y'all start? Yeah. Um, so. <laughs> what fun little thing you're doing over there <laughs> yeah. in Rome. Um, so <clears throat> what you, I heard you say, we're better together. We are. As mm-hmm. you're talking talking about global mm-hmm. Christians, but also, Correct. Luke, what you're kind of mm-hmm. getting at with mm-hmm. with your role in our church and kind of yeah, your, We're not your meant seat. to be alone. Mm-hmm. We're better together That's right. at a micro level, right? Not just a macro. Of course. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that idea of the Trinity, if we're created in the image of God, which we believe we are, well, then we are communal creatures. We're, we're relational by, by our very existence, which makes perfect sense. I mean, you think about You have three little babies. I sure do. Okay. The little trinity. About, I'm just kidding. You, I don't think that. Well, but you think about, um, <laughs> you know, when you're holding that baby, let's say that mom is nursing that baby. Mm-hmm. Okay. And what, what scientists tell us is that the field of vision for that baby is only just a few inches about the length of your forearm. And you're holding that baby at your breast. Well, that baby can only focus so far and that mom's focus is on that child. She's feeding that child. She's she's giving life to that child. That child is 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 receiving that nurture. But that child is returning that with these expressions and these connections that are far beyond words. So from the very beginning, you know that we're just relational people. We can't undo that. Well, and the church is the is the 
it should be the the colony of heaven on earth. It should be the place where we show exactly how to do that, even in its messiness, mm-hmm. you know, even in its brokenness. Um, it's still the place where we live out the image of God most fully. We do that in our first of all in our relationship with Jesus, obviously, but then that spills over in our relationship with each other. And so, by the very nature of who we are as Christians, we have to be communal, you know. And so, it shouldn't shock me that those early Christians were, you know, they they lived together, they did life together. Now. I realize too. I don't know that context is king, but but context is it's quite is, important. It's royal. Yeah. <laughs> um, we live in the West, and we've been influenced by Aristotelian realism. That's kind of the underpinning of the hmm. the, the individualism of the West. We're not really Platonic. The East has much more Platonism in it than the West does. We're we're more Aristotelian. I'm fine with that. I'm I'm an Aristotelian guy myself. I like Aristotle more than I did Plato, but. But you take every take everything to the extreme, and we end up as Americans being so individualistic, you know, and and such realists and pragmatists that we we can lose touch with with the sense of community, and mm-hmm. we have a lot to learn from our brothers and sisters in other places in the world who still are in touch with with community, with the value of community, with the role of community in their lives. And that's more of a learned thing for us when it comes to the church. Um, but it, but I believe once you get it, you recognize its value, and you and you just live in it, and you can thrive in it, and you can flourish. You know, when I'm, I mentioned Sunday, I've been following this research that's been um, ongoing at Harvard now. I've been following it for about thirty years. Mm. So, you know, just watching what all they're uncovering, where they're doing this longitudinal study of these adults. Well, now they're about eighty-five years into their research. And, and it's just fascinating to me that they keep landing on the same thing in every generation, that the key factor in human flourishing is deep, healthy relationships. Mm. And, and in, according to their research, it affects your mental health, your physical health, even your longevity. Yeah. Lest I mean, we forget think about that. <laughs> that the FDA has now declared that loneliness is an epidemic and is as bad for you as smoking. Yeah. So think about that. I mean, how powerful is isolation in a month? There's just so many examples of that. And, and, and when, even when people get pulled into um, the brokenness of their own lives and they start cutting themselves off from other people, well, every one of us, we know people like that. We've had examples of that with people that we love, and we've seen just how detrimental it is to their overall well-being. Mm-hmm. So the church is a place of fellowship and community and sharing life. And And not only that, the beautiful thing about it is when we come together and share life, we bring our personhood into that into that dynamic, and that that is um is is something that adds and enriches and adds texture to my life, just like what I bring to the table adds it to yours. And I'm a better person, a more holistic person because I'm I'm in relationship with other people. Absolutely, people see things from so many different perspectives, and um, it's just helpful to to live in that mm-hmm. in that environment. And so, mm-hmm. for us as a church. I would tell you, historically, we're a Sunday school church, and we're going to continue mm-hmm. to be one. But for Amen. for us, Sunday school is a place, or I think we call it Bible study here. Sunday morning what, Bible study. Is that I, what we call I, it? I've heard it both ways. Anyway, I, I still, think at some point we made the shift, but yeah, you're probably right. It's deep in our bones. Yeah, but yeah. I'm but I'm a Sunday school guy, so anyway, I don't think it hurts anybody's uh, yeah. feelings. Um, but <clears throat> but yeah. we're gathered together in small groups. You know, I'm, I I remember we had a um, I was in a meeting in. Um, in uh, Colorado with a group of larger church pastors from all over America. 
several years ago, and they asked us to just show some. Uh, we were supposed to bring with us just some photos of our campus, you know, just so people kind of look at it and see what what's going on. Well, when I showed ours, there were there were several pastors in my group who were a part of churches who only had worship on their campus and and basically nursery, something for the children, if you will, childcare. So they looked at our buildings that I showed them. They were like, "Well, they said, you know, Wiles, your your church looks like a college campus. Why do you have all these buildings? These, what is an education building? Why do you have three floors of an education building?" And I said, "Well, because we have Sunday school." And they were like, "What do you mean? You know, what do you mean you have Sunday school? Y'all have a school at your church?" <laughs> what I mean is, every Sunday morning, we have people in small groups studying the Bible together, but also sharing life together. It, of course, studying the scriptures is the heart of it, but we all know that's just the foundation. It's it's sharing life, and so we are organized around community, if you will, as a church. And we're now trying to extend that community because we realize that we're swimming upstream a little bit in our society. <clears throat> I don't know that I'm blaming it all on COVID, so don't hear me say that. But COVID didn't help. Mm-hmm. COVID only increased the isolationism. And the People loneliness. say that it accelerated the change yeah. that was already present in yeah, our culture. I, I would probably see that, say that. But table groups, Luke, you, yeah. you've, y'all are a part of this engagement team, you two, and had this idea. Let's try something to engage people in relationship from a missional perspective. Is that mm-hmm. not correct? Is yeah. that not what we're doing? That's the goal. It's... But you do it from a relational seat. Yeah. Thus the table. You know, you have a group from which mm-hmm. to do it. Yeah. You know, it starts yeah. relational. Mm-hmm. So this coming Sunday morning, we're going to share the Lord's Supper together. Speaking and so we table. will be metaphorically at a table. This is the Lord's table. We're the people of God. We're sharing in the life of Christ, the communal life of the church. Mm-hmm. Every time we take the Lord's Supper, it's a tangible, powerful, symbolic expression of our fellowship in our community, both with the Lord and with each other. And then we're going to have other folks who are going to be instructed in how to invite people to their table. Yes. You know, that that's this coming Sunday. At Sunday Church night, Washington. 530. Right. Kyle, I believe, is putting the RSVP link. You don't have to be a part of a group to come. We're calling mm-hmm. it Equipping Nights. Mm-hmm. And we're going to be talking about how the prayer, prayer, the Holy Spirit, and mission come together in our lives. Mm-hmm. Dinner is $8 for adults, $4 for kids. There you go. If you have kids, we do need you to RSVP for child care. That's my... At what? FBCA.org slash table, table groups? groups. Okay. You can RSVP there, and I believe Kyle's putting links in the episode description. So, oh. what do you go, Kyle? Kyle. 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 But yeah, but you don't have to is, be it. Again, but, but that's not necessarily radically new if you think about it. I mean, we have supper Mm-mm. clubs in our church. Mm-hmm. Well, when those all started, it, it, it emerged. They emerged out of Sunday school relationships, and there was people who just wanted to go to a deeper level with each other. Mm-hmm. And, and now we're going to try to take that and give it a missional edge, yep. you know? And um, I'll tell you, we have a family in our community that does that. Uh, they host things in our community all the time. You know, they have backyard parties. They're just gracious people. They have a really small house. It's kind of interesting that they're the ones that do mm-hmm. it because they don't have the house for it, but they have the home for it, you know? They, they, that's they, a great word. That's just who they are. And so they have chili cook-offs in the backyard. They have, they have neighborhood parties in the backyard. And it, we just kind of all know it, you know? And so... You, if you don't feel welcome anywhere else, and if you live in our neighborhood and you don't think you feel welcome anywhere else, I can promise you, you've attended one of those in their backyard. Welcome. Yeah, and you mm-hmm. have felt you have been made to feel welcome, you know. And uh, what the one of the first ones that I went to, 
and I love them. They're, we've gotten to know this couple. They're hilarious. We, they're just we're just great friends. Well, they're all sitting there and they're all drinking beer. I walk up and sit down, and and he, the host, he looks up at me and he holds a beer up. He says, uh, "Doctor Wiles, I'm not sure about this, but I just don't want I'll you. Offer to, it, I yeah. don't want you to feel left out." And mm-hmm. handed me a beer. You know, and I said, "Well, actually, you know, because I don't drink." And he started laughing. He said, well, "I didn't think you did, but I just, but I love the fact it's hospitality. He did not it? want me to feel yeah. awkward, mm-hmm. left mm-hmm. out, unwelcome in his yard. That's just not going to happen, dude." <clears throat> That, yep, that, we have something to learn. We have much to learn, Good. and we have something to offer. And we're going to try it. So we're going to maybe not have you put beers in your neighbor's hands. No, but let's don't do that. Uh, but, uh, not, not on the name no, of the church necessarily. But, but we can learn how to be but, hospitable. Oh, my goodness. And make people feel welcome. And that, that, to me, that was a, at the heart of kind of what I was trying to talk about yesterday. This, this desire, this need to belong mm-hmm. is just powerful. It really is. And, and we— I feel like we've we've got the we've got the four aces in, mm-hmm. in our hands. Mm-hmm. You know, we're we're sitting here. We should be the experts at helping you find a way to belong. You know, in the diversity and the richness of who our church is. So uh, I'm pretty excited about it, and and I'm 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 I'll be honest with you. When I I've been I'm finishing up now this book, The Great Dechurching. And um, on the one hand, you could read it and be very discouraged to look at the millions of Americans that have left the church. But on the other hand, it's an incredible opportunity. Over 50% of them say they would be willing to come back to church if they were invited and felt welcome. Yeah. So we, we can do those two things. <laughs> come on. Yeah. Right? Those are, not those, rocket science. Those aren't even like, the work, I mean, they are the work of the Spirit. But we, yeah. you can nuts and bolts invite somebody and make them feel welcome when yeah, they get absolutely. here. You know what I mean? Invite someone to church. Be yes. responsible for Tell how welcome they feel. Tell them where you'll meet them, that yeah. kind of thing. If Sit you see them. somebody you don't know, introduce yourself. Who knows? You, you, you might run the risk of introducing yourself to a 50-year church member. Well, it'd be terrible. And you know it? them. Yep. <laughs> I do it. I've been here eight and a half years. I still do it. Sure. But, oh, I, but I just say, I don't know if we know each other. You know? It's all good. It's easy. Yeah. Introduce yourself. Make a friend. Talk to strangers. Yeah. Okay. Uh, we are together. As the one that began this podcast, I need to end it. We are we, together. We're this together. <laughs> we have done a lot in this little cast, mm-hmm. and I enjoyed it. I learned some things, and maybe y'all did too. And we'll be back next week to continue to talk a, a very worthy topic, the church, together. So thank you all. Have a good week, and we'll see you next time. for listening to the Tell Me More podcast today. You can subscribe to this podcast on your app of choice, or you can visit us at fbca.org to find out more information about the podcast and our church. Thanks for listening. Have a good day.